damning reporting from the Project on Government Oversight has embroiled Postmaster General Louis DeJoy in a massive insider trading scandal centered around the Biden administration's distribution of free COVID-19 tests through the United States Postal Service. So newly released disclosure documents show DeJoy owns as much as $250,000 worth of stock in Abbott Laboratories, a medical supplies company that struck a $306 million contract with the federal government this January for their test kits. DeJoy reportedly purchased as much as $15,000 worth of Abbott Laboratories call options on January 7th. That's the day the White House's distribution partnership with the USPS was announced. He then made another purchase totaling as much as $50,000 worth of call options on January 13th. That's just two days before the Biden administration formally announced the multi-million dollar partnership with Abbott Laboratories. According to the Project on Government Account Oversight, the federal government has since purchased an additional $1 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars in kits from Abbott Labs. So this looks a little, little fishy. And I think it, you know what? Democrats deserve now to be getting uh, hit, you know, collaterally with a scandal from DeJoy for leaving him in place. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the guy that they were going around in 2020 saying was purposely undermining the Postal Service to help Trump win but wasn't election. That, that was, my recollection of that story was that a mountain was being made out of a molehill and that, it was not... Fine, fine but these are the mountain makers. <laughs> and so now the mountain right. makers... I didn't are, realize he was still in the position. Are in power. They, they're like, well, we can't do much. But since yeah. the summer, they've been saying they can fire. They're going to get rid of him internally. It uh, hasn't happened. What you'd have to do is get rid of the board, and then the board would have to get rid of him. But they could do that. Like, that's not, that's not an impossibility. get rid of the whole not U.S. Postal Service. The only thing you could fire, <laughs> what's in the Constitution, can't. The only thing that they, could, uh, that they can fire him directly for is for cause. This looks like cause. I mean... Mm-hmm. You get if if he had information, which you would presume he would, of this deal, and he buys options ahead of time, so that when it surges after the deal, uh, his stock options go way up. That's crazy. And meanwhile, the other thing that Democrats hit him for uh, what is com- is basically coming from a competitor of the Postal Service, and and doing everything he can to undermine the Postal Service to benefit the private competitors of the Postal Service. That he's still in power at this point is on Democrats. Yeah. I, d- I do think, though, there was a lot wrong with the, I remember that being a very kind of resistance narrative that did not turn out sort of along the lines of Russian collusion, that, uh, that he, was mo- he was changing the, mail, the mailing the ballots plans or something to harm... Uh, Democrats, and he really. Wanted I mean, the fact it. is, the ballots got out, right. and, they came, and they came back. Right. So it worked. Well, and then criticizing this sort of thing became a Trumpian thing. So, so I think they. Oh, right, right. That's what our enemies say. Let's not right. feed into that. Right, right. That's right. We're we're going back into a world when Democrats were constantly crying election fraud. Unfair, yeah, unfair yeah. election. Um, but yeah, this this does not look ethical. Obviously, I mean, it's so funny that politicians. I mean, it's not funny. They just routinely do this. Maybe I would make a bad, corrupt government official because I think if I learned information, it would not occur to me to buy stock. <laughs> I, mean, like, I don't buy stocks, period. Right. But I, w- I wouldn't be like, yes, like, call my broker. Like, this just wouldn't, wouldn't be my first What company was thought. that that we're partnering with? <laughs> Abbott Laboratories? What's... But it is for so many of us. The first thing they do when they come out of the meeting, call, their, call the family member or the broker and like set Richard, up a deal. Like Richard Burr, Burr walking right. out of that meeting. 
yeah. and then calling his like brother-in-law or whatever. Spencer wow. Bacchus, who kicked off this entire thing, I don't know if you remember him, former ranking member of the Financial Services Committee during the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. There was that meeting with Bernanke and Paulson that they've done a million movies about. The world's about to end. Bacchus walks out of that meeting, back flip phone days, whoop, <laughs> sell, 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 sell everything. Incredible. Yeah. Um, and here, that was 2008. Here we are, 14 years later. Uh, it's still legal, more or less. Haven't done for them, anything to stop it. Them to do it in Congress. You can't. In Congress, it's now illegal, at least, to do it. And if you get right. caught, but Richard Byrd right. basically did it and didn't get prosecuted. Mm. Uh, so this, but this looks so dirty. Yeah. Like it just, and that's the other thing about the appearance of corruption. Even if this is the world's biggest coincidence. Two coincidences back to back on two different days. Not a not a not a coincidence. But even if it is, it's, it creates the appearance of corruption, which undermines trust in government. Uh, and so that alone is a reason to ban this stuff. Right. Now it doesn't appear to be a coincidence. It looks like yeah, you know, guy knew what was happening and made a lot of money off of it. Yeah. Well, just this week, President Biden signed a sweeping overhaul of the U.S. Postal Service into law. The legislation is set to save the agency from future financial ruin and ensure the service can provide six-day-a-week delivery. Yeah. Robbie's excited. Save it from financial ruin. Nothing can save it from financial ruin. And uh, I would privatize this service. I mean, Amazon has perfected the art of cheaply delivering you exactly what you want, like, immediately. Private companies can do this better than the Postal Service. Amazon heavily relies on the Postal Service to subsidize them in, in, the, in the pursuit oh, of this. Why don't we just cut out the middleman? Just but then Amazon's gonna, Amazon will all of a sudden be a lot more expensive, or, and when they or, don't have to compete with the Postal Service. Or UPS, or, I mean, there's just... So what I love about the Postal Service being literally written into the Constitution is that if you understand that one of the most important industries at the time, communications industries at the time, was the mail, the founding, the framers wanted that nationalized. One of the most important things they wanted nationalized. If there were, and so you can imagine if these same framers lived in a time where there were other industries that didn't exist yet, They'd have wanted those nationalized and put in the Constitution, too. So I, I love reminding people that the, the framers were not as kind of hands-off government people, and as I'm sure you know, because like the libertarians love to go back and find the libertarians who were around then, but then you find out that actually a lot of them were not. A lot, of them were, were, a lot of them were big government. Well, but they weren't big central government for the most some part. Of them they, were, right. Some of them were. They, they weren't big federal government, right? They didn't give the federal right. government... Much, I mean, they more the, than the under Ham- the articles the of the Hamiltonian wing. Uh, it was more than uh, under the Articles of Confederation, obviously, but it was not a uh, so so much of what our federal government does today. I think would be very alien to them. They'd be like, "What? No, the states are supposed to do that." Well, right. I mean, and ma- even in their lifetimes, ma- Madison was like, "Wait a minute, how is Hamilton like getting canal digging right in, through the federal government?" I didn't think that that was in there, but well, Madison, you should have paid closer attention. You mm-hmm. wrote the thing. Mm-hmm. He just put in some amendments there. And he should have watched Hamilton, then he'd know everything yes. that Hamilton was doing. <laughs> Would know. As do, as do most people now. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, they do. And we'll have more Rising right after this.
We learned this week that the whistleblower responsible for leaking a copy of Hunter Biden's laptop hard drive to several media outlets and members of Congress has hundreds more gigabytes of deleted material. Whistleblower Jack Maxey is now on the run. This comes as the White House press corps is demanding answers. When asked about an appointment of an independent special counsel, White House uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki said this. The president has never had a conversation with the Department of Justice about any investigations into any member of his family. The GOP isn't letting up either. House Judiciary Committee Republicans are telling those familiar with Hunter Biden's laptop to give up any information or face subpoenas. Hunter Biden can't seem to escape scandal, according to The Guardian, while Hunter Biden lives it up in a luxury Malibu, California house. The Secret Service is shelling out over $30,000 per month to protect the president's son, meaning our taxpayer dollars are footing the bill. ABC News reports the security detail rented out a property in close proximity to Hunter Biden, which boasts six bedrooms and baths and, quote, gorgeous ocean views. <laughs> of course, many of us uh, by now know that the president's controversial son is under federal investigation for having been a consultant to companies in China and Ukraine. Culture editor at The Federalist, Emily Jashinsky, is here with us now. Welcome, Emily. Thanks so much, guys. So what do you think about this house story? So I, you know, I like Everybody else reacted at first, like, oh, my God, we're shelling out. I can't believe, you know, taxpayers are on the hook for this, you know, mansion for security detail for Hunter Biden. But then yeah, I thought about it for a little longer. And, OK, right, they do have to provide him security. They, they have to live nearby him. I mean, it's, it might not be there's any way around doing something like this, right? Yeah, that's, that's entirely correct. This is the least concerning thing about Hunter <laughs> Biden ever. Um, it's, it's actually just a, the reality of Secret Service seeing to protect members of the first family. They tend to live in very expensive areas, um, and that means that Secret Service is extremely expensive. So the sticker shock is immense. There's no question about it. But um, we have way, way more important things to deal with when it comes to Hunter Biden, as this um, laptop story continues to prove. And what would those what would those be like? What, and what, what do you think is most interesting about this? The revelation that there uh, is a ton of there could be a ton of deleted material that that uh, Congress and the media might be able to get its hands on. Yeah. So the Washington Post had a big, big, big story last week. Actually, it was a it was two stories. Um, but one of the stories went through basically a forensic uh, examination of the laptop and it found or of the the hard drive and it found this like very odd trail they kind of compared it to a crime scene where rappers had been left all over it as police were milling about um, but the bottom line is they were able to verify emails that involved cefc which is a, a chinese company that was paying hunter biden millions of dollars um, and that w had clearly interests in Hunter Biden trading on his name. So, and, and by the way, I apologize because I just ducked out to cover this news um, during an event. So <laughs> that's why I look like maybe I've been uh, held hostage by Hunter <laughs> Biden. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, blink, it's, blink three times if you're in Malibu. Right. <laughs> yes. But and the if so, to switch you to a new room with an ocean view, at least give you that. Right. right. No, you're right. Right. Uh, but the CEFC connection is, I think, one of the big consequences of the media not covering the story with um, much curiosity for a very long time. Now that seems to have changed. 
But one of the big consequences is that people genuinely do not understand how serious his entanglements with an adversarial foreign government, given what we know about this company and the, its relationship with the Chinese government. I think the public genuinely doesn't know how serious that connection is. And as the story, the saga, I should say, continues to get weirder, you have to remember that very, very powerful people and very powerful governments are involved. Um, and so some of the weirdness is related to the protection of that power. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's just new, more revelations um, every day. Uh, you know, so what do you think, like, so what, what, like, what's the next step in the, the process about, of learning more about this? Yeah, this is not going away. It's not going away. It seems like it's snowballing as more and more information is discovered. Um, but the bottom line is that information is going to continue to come out. We've seen this drip, drip, drip with the hard drive as more and more reporters have gotten their hands on it. There's an immense amount of data on it. And even the Washington Post was able to verify like thousands, tens of thousands of emails. But that was a, that was a small portion of the hard drive itself. So if there are deleted files in addition to that, we're talking about so much information. It's going to take the press a long time to get through it. It's going to take investigators a long time to get bank statements. Um, if Republicans retake the House in uh, the, this cycle, Hunter Biden is in for a world of subpoenas. Um, and so this will continue to escalate. But what we're going to keep learning about almost certainly is the extent of Hunter Biden's dealings with uh, companies that have ties to corrupt governments. And this CEFC is a huge deal. Um, this, is, this is a company that we, we really desperately need to know what Hunter Biden was selling them to get that level of paychecks uh, from them. And so I, I think you know, there's, there's good reason to assume, even as broken as this media is, we'll continue to learn more about that. Right, and this is a Chinese energy company that we know that the, the head of it met with Hunter Biden. And after the meeting, there was this very strange situation where they, they sent a piece of jewelry, he sent a piece of jewelry to yep. Hunter Biden's room, which his wife, now ex-wife, valued at $80,000. Hunter said it was really only worth 10000 And Hunter says he gave it to his business partners. It's basically just disappeared. But you know, not long after that, what, three-plus million dollars wound up in you know, accounts associated with, with Hunter Biden. And, and yeah, I do think that the, Ch the Chinese angle here has always been you know, one, of the, one of the most mm -hmm. interesting because this is a relationship with, like, as you said, you know, a, a, rising, a rising power. Um, what, what is your sense of what specifically the, the company wanted? Yeah, I think they wanted access um, to a powerful American family and government and a business. Um, and we don't know what they got for that. And that's what the question, the, the open question is, because Joe Biden, who is implicated in Hunter's business dealings, we know the 10 for the big guy line um, continues to look more and more real and continues to have more evidence that that is the sitting president of the United States. And at the time, the yeah. former vice president, we know Hunter Biden took Air Force Two with his father on an official vice presidential trip to do some of this business. This is like completely corrupt, but we don't entirely know the nature of it yet. And that's what we're going to continue to find out. But I think primarily it's access. Primarily it's mm -hmm. about softening 
the softening their ability to make favorable deals in the United States with regulators um, and politicians. And again, we don't know specifically what came of it, but the attempt and the fact that Hunter Biden and his father allowed their family name to be bought in that way is is completely shameful and corrupt. We already know that much. And that to me is like the real big story. The big story is, I mean, look, Hunter Biden, I, I, yeah, I think people try to do what they, you know, they, they use their connections to make a buck. Obviously, Hunter Biden's doing that. He clearly needed to register as a lobbyist, I, I would imagine. But um, to me, the real story is is Joe Biden. Uh, that is who would have committed the crime. That is who would have committed the, the you know, the act against the American public is, did Hunter, in trying to peddle his father, access to his father, did Joe Biden actually allow it i mean was did he participate in it somehow that to me is the real story yeah it is i mean and and it's a huge story either way that i think the the president's son um the former vice president's son was selling access in this way to a chinese uh energy company that had ties to the government and the government uh a government that is in ways seeking to undermine our country at the same time so the laws that we have so fara for instance which has gotten a lot of press recently the foreign agents registration act it doesn't make any of this foreign lobbying illegal it just makes it so that you have to disclose it and so whether anything was actually criminal um, on behalf of Joe Biden or Hunter Biden is open. But Kim, you're right. Joe Biden, there is plenty of evidence, mounting evidence that Joe Biden um, was taking some of this money. And we don't know where that went because he hasn't disclosed the finances of his S-Corps or Joe Biden's. That's a huge standing question. Again, if Republicans retake the House, if they have subpoena power, this is going to amplify. And we're talking, you know, still a year from now, if that were to happen. So this is this is absolutely not going away. And it is not going away for Hunter Biden. But you're right. Most of all, it's not going away for Joe Biden, nor should it, because these are open questions, although we already know the baseline uh, that this was corrupt no matter what. And what yeah. makes and what makes some of this more plausible is that the, the key parts that the Biden, the the Big, the 10% for the big guy, and also with the Washington Post reporting that Hunter Biden told his manager, told the manager of his office that he wanted Joe Biden to get a key, you know, to get yes. into his office. Like these things happened after he was vice president and during a period of time where he may have thought that his political career was, was over, that he wasn't running for office again. And post political career, it's actually a pretty normal thing for people to do now to cash in and join boards and and just get money for, you know, for your for your name. And so that's right. why people who are like, no, that's impossible. Joe Biden would never do that. Well, a Joe Biden who was a former vice president. Right. Why would he not join a corporate board? Now, this is a kind of a different kind of a corporate board, but it's a, it's in the same kind of vein of the right. He of did the not expect out. to run when it was Hillary Clinton. who was going to be the successor to Barack Obama. He he chose not to contest right. that, and I, he had every intention of, you know, of retiring in, in right. this sort of form. An American fa- contemporary right. American political retirement, making millions well, of dollars on corporate boards. Yeah, no, yeah. that's true. Although Using I your would connections, say- yeah. That while Hunter was taking Air Force Two, for instance, Biden yeah. still had not ruled out running for president in 2016. Yeah. He didn't rule that out until fairly late in the game. And the other thing that I would add. And he was um, sitting it, vice president then, obviously. He was, yes, right. yeah. yes. He was, right. he was the sitting vice president. And just don't forget the bigger context here that Hunter was in tons of debt, tons of debt. So he was desperate to sort of start climbing out of that debt. And that's where these 
this access peddling becomes very lucrative and very tempting for people here in D.C. And that's why it's a norm. Um, and that's where you also may have seen Joe Biden be more uh, sympathetic to his son, who even we, again, here's one lie that nobody should forget about. We already know it's a lie. Joe Biden said he never discussed his son's business dealings with him. Hunter Biden in his own book says that Joe Biden told him about Burisma. I hope you know what you're doing. Um, and so that measure of sympathy may have stemmed from the fact that Hunter was in major, major debt at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And thank, Thanks, thank you for I making time for us, despite your hostage situation. That's <laughs> all good. Thanks, guys. All right, we hope to see you alive again in the future. And we'll have more <laughs> rising right will. after this. The U.S. economy added over 430,000 jobs in March as unemployment sunk back down to 3.6%, placing it just above the 50-year low of 3.5% reached just before March 2020. President Biden bragged that the new numbers, which reflect unemployment dropping by half since January 2021, constitute, quote, the fastest decline in unemployment to start a president's term ever recorded. Yet as the president celebrates, Americans continue to feel the strain of rapidly rising prices at the gas pump and grocery store. Bloomberg News economists recently advised their readers to set aside an extra $5,200 in their budgets this year to accommodate inflation. Joining us now to weigh in is our rising panel. Colin Rojero is a Democratic strategist, and Inez Stepman is a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum. So, Colin, how are, how are Democrats responding to this now that we're several, several months past the time when uh, there, there was hope that it would be, be trickling, be, be coming back down? Uh, it's, it's maybe not, it, you know, it's, it's plateauing, but then you have this massive uh, price spike in uh, gas prices, just as you're starting to see it plateau. So, how are, you know, how is the party starting to think about this as it goes into campaign season? Yeah, look, I, I have to be honest. It's a very difficult challenge for Democrats going forward because even when you have good economic numbers and indicators, they're not necessarily translated directly into people's lives. I think if you ask people, are they happy that the unemployment is, uh, rate is lower? Sure. Uh, are they happy that the economy is adding jobs? Sure. Will it create some level of optimism? It might be helpful. But the problem is that people are seeing in kitchen table issues increased prices, and they are seeing every day when they go to the gas pump prices that are you know almost double what they were a year ago. And that's incredibly problematic when they view government as being stewards of the economy. Um, I think what Democrats have to do is talk about ways they are trying to address this problem. And I think there's been an untold story here that um, Democrats and the and the White House could be telling, and and that is not in gross figures, but in actually relatable terms. Okay, so Starbucks now pays twenty dollars an hour. It didn't pay twenty dollars an hour when Donald Trump was president, right? It now pays twenty dollars an hour and offers college tuition. So I think there are stories there that people can tell that you know economic situations for people are getting individually better, and that over the long term inflation will come down. But they have to express this and they have to talk about the plan that they have to actually bring it down, or it's going to be a very difficult challenge for people in the future. Democratic strategist and former campaign strategist for the Clintons, Mark Penn, wrote in Fox News over the weekend, quote, the administration's response has been to blame big business, accuse oil companies of profiteering, and to propose taxing the rich. He continues, quote, on issue after issue, Biden has had and still has the opportunity to move to the center and bring back enough suburban and independent voters to the party. So far, he has doubled down on many of his left-leaning policies. Fair, fair enough, Inez? 
Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, I think it's very difficult that the cultural center of the Democratic Party um, on a lot of these cultural issues, and that's that article lists, for example, immigration, education. Uh, it's not purely economic. Uh, actually, a lot of the issues that are hurting Joe Biden the worst um, in the polls are cultural issues, and it's very, very difficult for him to pivot away from those those issues or where his stances have been in those issues, which have been far from moderate, right? He has a reputation of a moderate, I think, because of primarily of economic issues. He doesn't go, for for example, as far as Bernie Sanders. He's uh, hesitating on, on a loan cancellation, right, on student loan forgiveness. So and on a lot of economic issues, he is at the center of his party, although he's to the left of the GOP, right? Uh, but on cultural issues, he's far, far to the left because that's where the center of um, Democratic voters actually are. They're just very far apart from a lot of moderates and even from a lot of um, Democrats or people who vote Democrats or have been voting for Democrats for a long time. Um, so yeah, I think it's gonna be very difficult. I don't, I think inflation is going to be a huge problem for the Democratic party. It's it's really hurting right. people as that $5,200 um, is a lot of money and it's a lot of money that people did not plan for. Um, and, and as far as the economic recovery, uh, I'm very grateful that, that we are bouncing back to February of 2020, finally, um, after additional, for, for many, many months, after vaccination was freely available, um, additional uh, sort of economic restrictions after the pandemic. Nevertheless, I'm happy that we are coming back after the pandemic. We would expect the economy to rebound uh, once it's literally the chains are taken off of it. Um, but but nevertheless, that inflation is really, really making it difficult for a lot of, of American families right now. And, and as as um, as everyone's admitted, you know, that that is going to be uh, an issue for Democrats in the midterms. And so, Colin, corporate profits were, in fact, up you know 25 percent in the most recent quarter. And so if it was just the case that uh, the cost of materials and, and inflation was uh, was driving up prices and we're in a competitive market, you'd see that eating into profits as, as firms competed with each other. Instead, you see profits exploding. And so if you have inflation that is driven by a supply chain problem, uh, by uh, labor shortage, and then exacerbated by corporate profiteering, uh, what is the kind of moderate response to that that a Mark Penn would propose. It, it feels like his 1990s era prescriptions don't really fit the particular disease that, that the patient's suffering from right now. Yeah, I, I, I happen to agree with that. I, I think that, uh, you know, Mark Penn's take is a little bit revisionist and, and is coming from a mid-90s perspective. What I would say is that historically, the Democratic Party has been the party of working people, for working people, fighting for protections against large corporations that would exploit them. And I think this is a good messaging lane for them, talking about the fact that there are record pro record profits and it's not being shared amongst hardworking American families and that we need to do something about that. And that we need to talk, instead of just constantly attacking business, having conversations with business to bring them to the table to help make them part of the solution is another way to look at it. We, we spend all of our time attacking corporations instead of sometimes saying, hey, let's work to improve the situations for everyday Americans and you are part of the solution. Because outside of minimum wage, the government can't really dictate how companies are going to and, and what they're going to pay. So they have to make them part of the solution. I think it's a better messaging construct to remind people that we are fighting for you and we want to bring everyone into the fold to make sure that you have a, you know, an ascendant economic purchasing power to deal with inflation and just in line with the corporate profits. Well, we have to leave it there. Colin, Inez, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll have more Rising right after this. 
new report published this week is claiming that Fox News viewers can be, quote, deprogrammed. According to the field study, select, voc- uh, select Fox News viewers were less likely to buy into so-called, quote, fake news after watching Rising for 30 days. That's no. not what it says on the teleprompter. It says CNN. <laughs> so the research experiment paid several hundred audience members of the right-wing outlet to participate. They had to watch seven hours of CNN weekly during September 2020. Maybe we should say reprogramming instead of deprogramming. <laughs> It only took three days for participants' attitudes to shift. The authors of the study found, quote, large effects on attitudes and policy preferences about COVID-19. Uh-oh. I'm most in Fox's camp on COVID stuff. We also found changes in evaluations of Donald Trump and Republican candidates and elected officials. That might be healthy. Uh, Pamela Denise Long and Max Alvarez here to discuss with us. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Good morning. So, Denise, you know, what do you make of this? So I think it's not surprising that people, you know, would, would have somewhat a different take on the news or ideas if, if they diversified, you know, what news they were consuming a little bit. I think that's a healthy exercise that everyone should engage in. I would encourage people to do it. I think it's healthy to get your news from multiple uh, sources uh, or just get all your news from rising right, right? From both me and robbie yes <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and kim and kim and and all of our wonderful guests <laughs> so uh, so yeah but it you know the idea that uh, oh people have only have bad ideas if they watch fox and then we need to give them cnn so they have good ideas that that rings a little hollow to me yeah, i don't know what, what do you think mm. yeah i i appreciate your wording of reprogramming and i agree a, a smart person a person who wants to understand an issue in a nuanced way from nuanced perspectives would diversify their consumption of media. I think when you exist in an echo chamber, what you hear is a reiteration of what you already hear inside your head. You would might be surprised to know that at one point I was an avid uh, Fox viewer. Um, and even now I continue to listen to folks on occasion, depending on what they're talking about, like Tucker Carlson, occasionally Laura Ingram, because understanding their perspective and their commentary, which is a lot of what Fox is, right? It's people's take on the issues. Um, Their commentary can be interesting to understanding uh, just how folks are seeing issues and the questions if you're having dialogue with people who don't believe as you do, which I also think is a healthy thing to do. Uncommon, but healthy. Yeah, Max, multiple perspectives, I think, are really important. Uh, I read an interesting quote the other day from the, I think it was a New Zealand prime minister. Uh, they, they asked her, you know, why is it that you don't have, you know, angry, older white men kind of spinning with rage in New Zealand in the way that you do in the UK, in the US, in Australia? Uh, and I think they were trying to get at, is, it, is there something about the kind of the social contract or something about the social democracy? Is there some type of programming? Like, are people better off materially? And instead, she said, because we never let Rupert Murdoch set up shop here. Uh, and and she, turned, she wasn't joking, like that, that there is something about the Murdoch media empire that stokes anger and, and produces a thing in a way until it becomes a real part of our material society. Do you think that she's overplaying that or do you think there's might be something to that? I mean, I definitely think there's something to that. I mean, I think that, you know, Murdoch has been a, a, a net negative on humanity. I feel like that is like 
as objective as I can be as someone who was raised on Fox News, right? Let's not forget, as I've mentioned a million times on this show, I was raised very Catholic, very conservative. We had Fox News on all the time. I was also in Southern California growing up. We were in the car most of the time. So my folks were listening to right-wing talk radio, like Rush Limbaugh, like Dennis Prager, like Larry Elder, like Dr. Laura Schlesinger, right? This was These were the voices of my childhood. And I very much recognized the ways that they are both incredibly comforting, they are ideologically supportive of people who already feel a certain way, and they do a very good job at turning their quote-unquote opponents, which is your neighbors, your co-workers, your fellow parishioners. This is what Fox's main objective is, is to pit working people against one another and see their neighbors as the enemies and not uh, direct their ire at the people at the top who are screwing all of us over. But I'll save that, you know, for for another day. But I do recall the kind of impact that it has consuming this stuff day in and day out. I also, as a former, you know, uh, college teacher, very much uh, championed the benefit of seeing different perspectives. We talk about that like it's a good in and of itself. In, in a way it is, right? Because it just forces you to see a little bit outside of your own head. When right now, the media ecology that we live in is going in the opposite direction, like with the change, and you can see it. You can see the changes to, go to Twitter and Facebook's algorithm. The second you like a post, immediately your feed updates and it says, oh, because you like this, you might like this. So it is very much conditioning us to be path dependent on our existing uh, you know, likes and tastes. And it is, it is closing off our vision to the rest of the world and people who think differently. But the, the one thing I wanted to say as a former media historian, like you guys can probably see up on this side, right? I have a shelves full of books about media history because this is what I used to study back in academia. So I want to like just note two things for, for viewers and listeners and then I'll shut up because there are material and policy-based decisions in our history that have helped create this massively unhealthy media ecosystem that we have today. A lot of people tend to point to Ronald Reagan and the FCC repealing the quote-unquote fairness doctrine in 1987 as the thing that gave rise to Fox News. There's actually a problem with that interpretation because the Fairness Doctrine applied to broadcast. It did not apply to cable, and also Fox News wasn't launched until 1996. But what repealing the Fairness Doctrine did was it was a boom to conservative talk radio. And so people like Rush Limbaugh very much helped create the market that Fox then capitalized on later in the 90s. What really set things off was Bill Clinton pushing through the Telecommunications Act of 1996 on the neoliberal premise that more market competition was going to create a healthier media environment. What it did, in fact, and we can see this 20-something years later, is it supercharged media consolidation. Now, about 90% of media companies are, 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 of media operations are owned by just six companies. And we see these insanely massive mergers like um, M uh, Amazon buying MGM recently for $8.5 billion. And before that, Disney bought 21st Century Fox for $71 billion. Sinclair is buying up mm. local news stations all over the place. It's that sort of concentration that uh, on the macro level that is a Again, impeding our ability to see beyond these sort of curated perspectives that these massive profit-making companies are allowing us to see. Okay, end of speech. <laughs> you know, Denise, so the issue I have uh, with, with what Max was saying at the beginning of what he was saying, you know, if you have to, though, say the, the Prime Minister of New Zealand saying, yeah, we kept Murdoch out, 
Well, I mean, that goes to a thing that we do differently in this country, right? The government can't say, no, mm. we're saying no to this media property because we well, don't agree to. with it or we don't like it. What's that? Used to before, in a way. Right. But would, right. would we all agree we shouldn't do that? When we don't all agree. That's what the, how the law is. I agree that we shouldn't right. do that. I think if you, have to, if you have to silence it or you have to censor it, that's, you know, that's malicious kind of in its own right. And you might be censoring or silencing something that has some value. I don't agree with Everything said on Fox, I don't agree with all of its hosts. I agree with some of what they have to say about education issues, about how the pandemic was handled by liberal public health authorities. Certainly, I probably agree with them more than I agree with CNN or other places that I'm also happy to go on, mm -hmm. despite you know criticizing them and, and have been in conversations with people there. So, so what do you you know what do you think about this? I think there's a there's an underlying value here that I'm hearing, like you have a desire, a drive to critically assess your understanding of things. And generally speaking, humans want validation of their beliefs and what they currently are thinking. And in my experience of being an avid Fox viewer uh, at the time, um, is that it does create a sense of angst and anger uh, with the commentary that is provided. And it is directed outward at your, your, you're seeing people who have a divergent perspective as your opponents and not folks that you should be dialoguing with, but folks that you should be battling ideologically, politically, uh, and the like. So I, would wonder if folks on CNN were paid to watch Fox, what the reverse results uh, of this research would be. And if the academics are watching, I would love a study of Rising. Oh, yeah, right. we should have them watch Rising Absolutely. instead of find out they come away you know, better educated about a multiplicity of perspectives and, uh, and they're happier, they're sleeping better at night. They're making more money. Their wildest dreams are coming true. That's what I yep. think they'd find. I, I think that's probably right. That's a hypothesis. Let's test it. <laughs> Max and Denise, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the diversity of thought. There you go. We'll have more rising right after this. More attractive. Doing <laughs> <laughs> President Biden spoke out in support of workers' rights to unionize in a big way earlier this week. Let's watch. That's what unions are about, in my view, about providing dignity and respect for people who bust their neck. That's why I created the White House Task Force on Worker Organization Empowerment, to make sure the choice to join a union belongs to workers alone. And by the way, <laughs> by the way, Amazon, here we come. Watch. Watch. Well, it's why I've called on Congress to finally pass the PRO Act and yeah. send it to my desk. Biden coming in hot there. While workers' choice to form Amazon's first union last weekend shifted the momentum against the retail giant in the most meaningful way maybe ever, new reporting from The Lever reveals that one major big tech lobbying group is now going to bat for the retailer, dropping a new multi-million dollar ad campaign targeting Congress efforts to regulate Amazon. The legislation in question would shut down retailers like Amazon's ability to favor their own products over other sellers. With broken supply chains, 
and lives disrupted, businesses like Amazon have invested to deliver on time for you and help hundreds of thousands of small businesses gain access to millions of online shoppers. But Washington politicians have a law that could break Prime's guaranteed two-day free delivery and threaten our fragile economic recovery. Tell your senators, don't break our Prime. Oppose S-2992. Paid for by CCIA. Founder of The Lever, former senior advisor to the Sanders campaign and contributing editor at Jacobin, David Sirota, joins us now to discuss. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. Yep. And as a Washingtonian, I can confirm that that ad campaign is plastered around here. You're, you, you see it an, an awful lot. So what, what, is, what is behind this? What, you know, what, is, what is this claim that they're going to break prime? <laughs> well, the legislation in question is about whether uh, uh, sellers, third parties on these platforms uh, should be able to be treated equally uh, to the seller's own brands themselves. So when you go on to Amazon Prime or when you go on to a Google platform or an Apple platform, uh, and you, let's say you're a small business, you want to be treated uh, equitably in terms of placement, in terms of uh, fees, in terms of all sorts of uh, those things. You want to be treated the same way that those platforms, that their own in-house brands are treated. Otherwise, you're on an unlevel playing field. So the legislation in question would es essentially uh, try to create that. It would, it would essentially regulate that and say to these platforms like Amazon, you have to treat everyone essentially equally. You can't preference your own uh, brands, your own products uh, in a way that, that essentially rigs the marketplace. So what Amazon is responding by doing uh, is is saying that if if we do this, if uh, third parties, if small businesses get treated equally on our platform, it will somehow collapse the entire Amazon Prime system. So they're making a very um, they're trying to portray uh, their position uh, as an oligopoly, as a monopoly, as pro consumer, which of course comports with the way uh, antitrust has been looked at uh, for the last 40, 50 years. The idea being that uh, th there's been a kind of a shift in the way regulators have looked at antitrust to say, well, if a monopoly or an oligopoly uh, supposedly serves the interests of consumers, then there's no real problem. There's no real need for antitrust. Uh, but 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 what Amazon and that's what the essentially the argument Amazon's making, that if there is any antitrust enforcement here, that people who like their Amazon Prime uh, will lose out on what they like. Well, and David, though, I would make a and, you know, maybe that who knows if that's true or not. I could understand Amazon, you know, inflating the claim to scare people out of supporting this legislation. But I mean, I have to say it, it's not it is Amazon's store. Right. So they're going to just the same way that in Costco, there might be preference for the Kirkland brand. You know, there, there's no there, you know, wars are fought over shelf space in uh, in traditional um, uh, re retailers, grocery. How is this like any different from that kind of thing? Well, because of because of Amazon's size and because of the, the platform's size. I mean, we're not talking about one uh, small website here. We're talking about uh, the largest online retailer in, in the country, if not in the world. Uh, and that means that it effectively is, uh, for all intents and purposes, it is the online retail economy. So that's a, a situation where the basic rules of competition uh, should, in my view, should apply in a way where people coming into that economy are able to be treated 
in a very rough sense, uh, they're able to be treated fairly. Otherwise, you get all sorts of potential for abuse, for manipulation. And we've heard that. I mean, you know, there's been plenty of evidence that that third party sellers, small businesses uh, are, are essentially being abused by Amazon's market share uh, in this. And so so look. Amazon is trying to scare people. Uh, and ultimately, it's going to be a question of whether uh, Congress gets scared out of doing uh, this bipartisan legislation. Can you well, explain But another just, issue, oh, like I've, I just looked it up. I mean, Amazon is, it, it might work because people do like Amazon. <laughs> they like it the way it is. Amazon is much more popular than Congress, more popular than Joe Biden. It's, I think it's more popular, <laughs> as a, according to this is more popular than any institution there is except the U.S. military. So, oh, you know, taking on this, like, what? what, yeah, what? I mean, Amazon's been smart about the way that they've branded sure. well, It's not just that they've been smart. Yeah. They, they, they deliver to millions of people stuff they want easily and cheaply. By and, the, and Congress right. ha is deciding, yeah, there's something nefarious and wrong about this. We have to get involved. Right, but by crushing and extracting. Go, David, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, right, by crushing and extracting profits from small businesses. So I think what's interesting about this battle is that you hear a lot of rhetoric in Congress, uh, from especially from conservatives, about how important small business is to uh, the American economy, to the American ethos. Uh, and so this is a situation in which small business uh, and enormous business, the biggest of big business, are in a huge battle. And yes, you're right. Amazon has has marketed itself in a very shrewd fashion. I don't know how this battle is going to play out in the sense of you're right, that when Amazon says uh, people aren't going to get their prime or they're not going to get the Amazon prime services that they like, ultimately, I don't know where the public is going to come down on that. Right. But but I, I would say this, that if we want to live in a world where Amazon controls literally everything and there really aren't any independent small businesses because they're all essentially clients of Amazon, that's the world we're moving towards. And there's a lot of downsides to that. There's a lot of downsides for innovation. There's a lot of downsides for creativity, a lot of downsides uh, for local economies. And I think that's why Congress is in this fight. And so, you know, yeah. one, one thing that ha go ahead, Cam, sorry. Well, I was just going to mention that, you know, one thing to Robbie's um, kind of counterpoint to this is about uh, stores having shelf space and whatnot. But the difference with Amazon, I think, is that, you know, OK, so if I go to, let's say, Walmart or Target's website, um, I know that those are box stores that actually do carry products in those stores. And I'm looking for products within those stores. But Amazon, I think, built itself as a platform that aggregated uh, outside vendors. So it acts more as like a like an open air market, not a not a retailer that gets to select and curate products as much as being like a search engine for products. And I think that's how it originally sort of like you can sign up and put your stuff on on uh, on their website as. To, and, to, and Kim, you know, Kim, that is a, a really yeah. it is a really important point that you're making in this sense that we have chosen and decided as a, as a society that we will uh, regulate uh, the exchanges and markets in the economy. As an example, the stock market, uh, as right. an example, the commodities market. So if we see because we basically said these are open air markets, open air, their whole economies and that the government has to actually at least enforce some of the most minimal and basic rules rules of commerce on the in those giant enormous economies. I think that's the theory here. Yeah, yeah and the, like the New York Stock Exchange is a good example. That's a private company. And in fact, the wife of the owner of it, 
uh, was the Georgia Senate was the Georgia senator uh, who was involved in the insider trading scheme. Well, but it would there, be as there's if, a lot of nefarious behavior there. Right. OK, yeah, right, but it would but be as if some harm would be as if the New York Stock regulation. It would be as if the New York Stock Exchange, the company itself could front run in the market right. and could have That's its right. own like in, 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 interventions in the market to profit for itself. Because what Amazon does is it sees, oh, this Burt's Bees thing you know, is doing extremely well on our platform. Here's Amazon Burt Bees, and they suppress when you try to find the actual Burt Bees, whatever. Right. And, and they put all of the Amazon product in front of you, and they disguise it so well, you I mean, can't really tell that it's an Amazon product. If they're violating some copyright, they can be you know, prosecuted well, for but, that. But if they're, it, if they're ripping off... Right, we have strong oh, I mean, it's essentially them using but... it's it's them using their position as the market right. maker to essentially rig the market. And right. look, ultimately, it does come down to a question of philo- philosophy and ideology. Do you think markets should be rigged, or do you think it's better when markets are an equal playing field uh, for all participants? And I think the legislation is trying to say uh, it, the latter is better, and Amazon is trying to say if we do the latter, uh, it will break the thing that that Americans like. And and ultimately, how this plays out. Uh, that's what the battle is over. I think if human be need doing... is being well met efficiently and cheaply by a company that most people like and use and value, the government does not necessarily need to get involved. That's my Well, that's, that's true if I if I selected Amazon Burt's Bees over Burt's Bees every single time, right? And a lot of people do that. But that, so that would be fair if I purchased it over and over and over again, I suppose, and it became a popular item. But if it's not popular on its own and it's just force fed down my throat, like mainstream news, you know, they make something popular, whether I like or, or, or the music industry does it all the time. They'll run a record over and over and over again just to get you to like it. You'll eventually like it if you hear it enough. You yeah. know, it's like country music. I finally eventually started liking it after I was force fed it all the time. Right? Yeah. So that's that's how that works. I mean, if you're seeing something in front of your face nonstop. But David, I'm, I'm curious if this is if there's any plan to have this same sort of legislation or maybe I'm maybe I, I am not aware of something similar for this for like Google, for example, and suppression of search engine results. You know, I mean, it I, seems I, similar. I, I, I... I mean, Google and Apple are part of the coalition or part of the front group uh, that has been uh, trying to kill this legislation. There are implications for all of of these platforms, Uh, and whether it's slippery slope, meaning they're afraid that the next step will be a regulation of them. I mean, this is ultimately the crux of the new antitrust movement that's happening that they're trying to stop. Right. Like the App Store stuff where they take 30 percent from every app. Yeah, they're going after it. David, yeah, great, great reporting. Interesting conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to all of you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Last month, New York State Assembly moved on wage inequality and passed a bill requiring government contractors to regularly file public reports detailing their employees' pay averages by job category, race, gender, and ethnicity. Now, some of the bill's supporters, however, are all talk, no action, when it comes to their own offices, according to journalist Matthew Thomas. Progressive Assemblywoman Yuli New of Chinatown pays most of her full-time staff a measly $30,000 a year. She also tweets weird things about how everything is violence, but that was a different story. While 30-year veteran Assemblywoman Deborah Glick of Tribeca and the West Village pays her white employees over four times more on average than her Hispanic staff, allegedly. So author of the Vulgar Marxism newsletter, Matt Thomas, joins us now to expand on his reporting. Welcome back to Rising. Thank you for having me. So first things first, to set the context, do these staffers live in New York City or do they live in Albany? 
because I think because that that actually is you know thirty thousand dollars in Albany and thirty thousand dollars in uh, New York City are two different things. Not that you're living high on the hog in Albany, but uh, you're at least oh, not, sure. not dying. Um, um, so the personal staffs of the elected representatives live wherever they are from. Um, there are central staff uh, in Albany that um, live there, uh, but those um, are different than the ones that are analyzed in the article. So the personal staff um, for uh, people that serve in both the Assembly and the Senate live in the districts where um, their representatives are elected. Right. So that's New York City. So. Right. Yeah. Everyone in the article here is analyzed as, is in the context of New York City for, um, you know, an apples to apples comparison. Thirty thousand dollars doesn't go very. They far do. In, in what are these? Are these don't like rich donor kids? Like, how are they getting by? Like, have, do you, what's your sense of how they get by on thirty thousand dollars a year in New York City? Um, well, that's definitely one of the problems um, because pay is so low. Um, a lot of these jobs, um, you know, essentially become internships for people from families that um, are already well off. Um, you see that in media as well. Um, the pay is so low at the lowest level that only people who come from money or who have some other means of supporting themselves um, are able to are to actually um, do these kinds of jobs. Um, I'm always a little puzzled about how people say, how can you get by on like $30,000 a year in New York City? Like there are a lot of poor people in New York City. I've been a poor person in New York City. Um, so you can definitely do it. It's not fun. It's awful. It sucks to be poor. Um, but you can definitely <clears throat> make it happen. And of course, millions of people do every day in New York. Um, but it's preposterous that, you know, the people that control, um, you know, the government and and that promote progressive values and things like pay equity um, would force their own employees to to live on $30,000 yeah. a year and, I mean, I, and yeah. really be in poverty in New York City. I actually did it myself in my early 20s. And the answer to that was lucking out with an incredible rent control department and just yeah. never and just never doing anything like just, you know, eat, you know, eating the, at the cheapest stuff out of the grocery store and social life, bringing beer to people's houses like just you just could not you could not do anything other than that. And then you could make it. Yeah. And I take your point about hypocrisy, obviously, if you're if you're a legislator who's advocating, you know, higher minimum pay, that sort of thing. But you pay your workers terribly. I mean, just yes, clean hit, obviously hypocritical. That said, I guess my concern would be for having if you were to advocate having some sort of mandatory minimum pay that's much higher than this is that you would price out um actually younger people who are who want to get their start in politics or journalism same thing if there's a minimum salary requirement the staffer just wouldn't or the uh, the the lead, the congress person just is was not willing to pay you know $50,000 to for a you know a kid who's just out of college who you have no idea how good of a staffer they are you are willing to pay $30,000 if you have to pay them $50,000 you're just not going to hire any of these people i guess that would be my concern Mm, I think that the incentives are somewhat different in the public sector versus the private sector. So the way it works in New York is that, um, at least in the state, well, in both the state assembly and the state senate, um, the leadership of each body assigns a certain amount of money to each elected um, to hire staff, and it's seniority based. And so if you've been there, if it's your first term or even in your first, honestly, 10 years of service, you get a certain amount 
um, the minimum amount for Democrats at the lowest rung in the New York State Assembly for staff is like 180, 190,000. And they give that to you and they say, you know, hire whoever you want, however you want. So you can hire three full-time people and one part-time person. You can hire three full-time people and 10 part-time people. Like however you want to break that down, you can do it. Um, and so, but it's not as though that the, that money is going for any other use. Like in the private sector, um, people, uh, you know, employers may not want to pay a certain amount for a, um, a certain type of labor because they need that money for other operations of the business. Um, but an elected representative, like their staff allocation is just their staff allocation. Um, and it's a, honestly like it's a drop in a bucket compared to the 200 billion dollar a year budget of, of the state of New York. Um, so I, I think the incentives are somewhat different. The, there's not the incentive on the part of the elected to save that money or reinvest it somewhere else like there would be in the private sector. Well, then, so in, in that case, does this, you know, legislator who only pays 30000 does that mean she has like a giant staff or something? Like she's paying a bunch of people a small amount of money? Yes, that's exactly what it means. So like if you look at the breakdown of um, Assemblymember Yuli New's staff, I think she has uh, three or four full-time people at the like the absolute lowest rung you can you can possibly pay. I think her legislative director makes like twenty nine thousand five hundred dollars a year. She has um, two or three people at thirty thousand a year. I think this the um, uh, chief of staff makes around fifty, and then she has like four or five people making between like ten and twelve or fifteen a year that are allegedly uh, part time um, between various roles. Um, that's an unusually high number of people. That's the that's the most people employed at any one time I, of, of all the assembly members staffing records that I reviewed. Um, most of the, for example, my former boss, Sarhan Mamdani, who represents Astoria in the state assembly, he has three full-time people on staff and one part-time person. Um, and each of them make, I believe, between 50 and 60 a year, except for the part-time person who, I forget how much she makes. But so you can, you can, structured in different ways but yeah there's a strategy obviously of the more like you kind of a larger staff that is less well compensated but then you can sort of pressure them like once they're already in the office you can be like well you're already here can you stay in there an hour extra um and so by breaking it up and having a larger staff i think it's easier to um pressure people to get the most um you know sort of bang for your buck out of how much you're paying them this explains how where this that ridiculously dumb tweet comes from. She doesn't have anyone competent, yeah, no well-paid working staff. for her to say, wait a minute, yeah, stop. And are the part-time staff uh, connected to the fact that the assembly only meets for you know, part of the year? Is that your, is that your sense? No, um, the assembly is only in session about six months out of the year, um, but the work that the electeds do um, is full-time, where it's, it's supposed to be full-time. Um, in New York, there's this expectation that constituent services are offered by um, each office year-round. And of course, they do other types of, I mean, I guess it depends on, on the elected. Uh, many electeds that are good at their jobs and, and dedicated to organizing year-round full-time. So they may do tenant organizing, they, they'll provide constituent services, they'll work on other political projects, they'll build support for uh, initiatives or bills that they want to pass. Um, so they do do work full-time and, um, and the staff is supposed to be hired um, full-time as well. There are, there's a certain category of staff that are hired only um, for the legislative session, um, but all of the full-time staffers discussed in the article are supposed to be year-round. 
It, it creates an interesting dilemma because you can you can step back and say the entire sit the entire system is gross and needs to be reformed. But if you're one member in that system, you're faced with curious choices. If constituent service, you know, is as significant a part of the job as you're saying, which I which I agree that it is, then in some ways, the more that you can exploit uh, these workers, the better your constituent service is going to be. So it's not, you know, you're not exploiting workers uh, just to, you know, make sure the prime shows up the next day. You're keeping people in their homes. You know, you're making sure that people are getting the benefits they need. You know, you're, you're saving lives and making people's lives better. So it, it does create an interesting kind of ethical uh, trade-off there. How do, how do most members grapple with that? Because if you were like, you know what, my, my main concern is, is pay equity. I'm going to have two full-time staff. They're going to be paid very well. Then you might not be able to serve your constituents as well, or you might be able to serve them better because you get super qualified people that are then able to organize the neighborhood. I don't know. What's your take on it? Yeah, I think that you know that's. The, I mean, that is the tension that is created by kind of the artificial the level of artificial scarcity. Certainly, you could um, invest a huge amount of money. You could give each staff member a million dollars, um, or each uh, elected official a million dollars to hire their staff, but that would probably be um, too much. Uh, so. Yeah, you do. There's always that trade-off, and I think you see the same dynamic in political campaigns, especially on the left. Um, there was a, you know, a big blow up last year around the uh, mayoral campaign of a leftist candidate, Diane Morales, about um, how the staff should be treated and whether or not they were being asked to do too much. You know, that was a complicated case, but you see the same dynamic. Um, across progressive campaigns, especially in the push for uh, the unionization of progressive campaign staff. Um, you know, the tension there is you want to ensure that the people that are working on the campaign are well treated and well compensated. But at the same time, on the left, you know, we don't have a ton of money to throw around. Um, and there is sort of an imperative to uh, give to the movement in a way that um, is not a nickel and diamond it so much recognizing that it's not just a job it's about the dedication to a cause and i think the same dynamic is present in something like constituent services or working for an elected um and so it's difficult to strike that balance sometimes but it's much easier if there isn't this kind of artificial scarcity imposed uh from outside and i think that the seniority-based allocation system in the state assembly um, is definitely amplifying those contradictions well, Matthew Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this.